1: Black Hat 2017 is wrapped up, and by all accounts, it was another successful conference with an active trade show floor, exciting keynotes, and engaging informative educational sessions on a variety of topics. There was business being done with hopeful entrepreneurs and investors alike looking to identify the next big thing in cybersecurity. In this CyberWire special edition, we rounded up a handful of presenters and one investor for a taste of Black Hat to help give you a sense of the event. Patrick Wardle is chief security researcher at SNAC, and he's also the creator of Objective-C, an online site where he publishes the personal tools he's created to help protect macOS computers. He'll be telling us about his research on the fruit fly malware recently discovered on macOS. Hiram Anderson is the technical director of data science at Endgame. He'll discuss research he released on stage at Black Hat, showing the pros and cons of using machine learning from both a defender and attacker perspective. Zach Allen is manager of threat operations, and Chaim Sanders is a security lead at XeroFox. They'll tell us about their Black Hat presentation on finding regressions in web application firewall deployments. And we'll wrap it up with some insights from Alberto Yepes, founder and managing director of Trident Cybersecurity, on the investment environment and the changes he's seen in the market in the last year. Stay with us.
2: So, FruitFly was discovered originally in February of this year, actually the first Mac malware of 2017.
1: That's Patrick Wardle.
2: Discovered by Malwarebytes. Um, A few weeks after that initial discovery, a friend of mine gave me a hash of a variant, uh, a new variant, Variant B, that I took a closer look at that uh, looked like it came out around the same time frame or was discovered again in January or February of this year.
1: So give us an overview, uh, how does it work?
2: Yeah, so FruitFly targets uh, Mac users, so it's a Mac backdoor, essentially. It's a fairly feature-complete backdoor providing a remote attacker the ability to fully control an infected computer. So standard things like file upload, uh, process, execute, uh, running shell commands, numerating processes, but it also has some interesting capabilities. For example, it can interact with the mouse and keyboard. And the initial variant also had the ability to turn on the webcam. So it looks like the main goal of the malware was unfortunately to spy on uh, infected victims.
1: And is there any notion of of who is being targeted?
2: So that was interesting. So one of the cooler aspects, I think, of my analysis was I was able to decrypt some of the backup command and control server addresses, and these were available for registration. So as part of my analysis, I had built a custom command and control server so that I could task the malware in the lab and basically have it show me what it was able to do. Um, So the end result of that analysis was I had this custom command and control server that could fully interact and talk to the malware. So anyways, I registered these backup domains and put up my custom command and control server and immediately hundreds of infected victims connected. Now I didn't task any of those victims, but when the malware connects, it sends a host and username, and also obviously I have its IP. So with those three pieces of information, you can readily identify victims' full names and where they're roughly geographically located. And then you can hop on LinkedIn or Google and get a pretty good sense of who these people are. So in this piece of malware, this scenario, we actually were able to pretty readily identify the victims, and unfortunately it looks like it's just uh, everyday kind of people, uh, families, um, you know, individuals, most in the U.S., and with certain Interesting geographic clustering uh, looked like, for example, o- Ohio had about twenty uh, percent of the victims. So that's that's kind of interesting in a way.
1: Any idea what the infection vector is?
2: No, and that's a great question. Um, I'm pretty sure certain people know. Um, you know, I handed over my research and information to. Uh, law enforcement, and I know Apple has been looking at this as well. You know, if we look at how traditionally Macs get infected, it's usually through some sort of user interaction. So an email with a malicious attachment, uh, perhaps a trojanized or pirated application, or maybe even an infected website that has a fake security uh, pop-up. But in this case, we actually didn't see an installer. So maybe there's a different infection vector. That having been said, the malware while its feature-complete isn't incredibly sophisticated. So, you know, I would be surprised if it's using some, you know, really advanced exploit or some infection technique that perhaps doesn't use user interaction. Uh, but hopefully we'll, we'll have an answer to that in the not-too-distant future. So would a standard uh, antivirus detect it? So this is one of the issues. Uh, so looking at this malware, um, there's some forensic clues and also uh, some other interesting information, which unfortunately isn't public at this time, that seems to indicate that this malware has been around perhaps five or even longer years, um, which is a rather long time. So it's possible that uh, this malware you know, hasn't been detected for almost half a decade or more. And when it was originally discovered by bytes, and when I started looking at the variant B, uh, neither of those samples were detected by any of the antivirus engines on VirusTotal. So um, my guess was this piece of malware kind of flew under the radar and it being a custom code, a custom piece of malware, um, you know, it didn't have any detections for perhaps an incredibly long time. So that's a little worrisome and I think kind of illustrates the fact that uh, perhaps, uh, let's say antivirus on Mac has a a rather long way uh, still to go.
1: You have some uh, some security tools on your own website. Uh, would they have uh, had any chance of detecting this?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And, and the reason um, I design security tools is exactly for a scenario like this. So most of my tools, the way I design, they look for malicious activities versus signatures of, of known malware so it's likely that my tools would have detected this for example when i ran them against the sample a lot of the activities of the malicious code would trigger so for example one tool knock knock will show you installed um, items Um, this piece of malware installs itself as a launch agent so you would see an unsigned launch agent that probably you wouldn't recognize Uh, oversight which monitors the webcam and the microphone Um, would have likely popped up when the malware uh, turned on on the webcam. And it was interesting because the malware had the ability to alert the attacker uh, when the user was not active. And this was probably by design as a way to spy on users without them noticing. Because the webcam was turned on by by the malware, the LED indicator light would go on. And if you're sitting at your computer and all of a sudden the LED indicator light goes on, like, throw throw that computer out the window, right? <laughs> right, right, right. The um so the attacker probably realized this and therefore, you know, built some capabilities into his malware so he could perhaps only turn on the webcam when the user was not there, with the hope from the attacker's point of view that maybe he would capture, you know, the the victim, you know, walking around their bedroom in their underwear or You know, worse, uh, less. So, you know, a tool like Oversight, which can alert you of this webcam activity, I think is incredibly uh, powerful. So, you know, I think it's wise for users to look perhaps into third party security tools, especially free ones, that are able to uh, detect malicious activities versus, you know, looking for just static signatures. Because I'm sure there's other similar threats out there, and traditional antivirus products may not be detecting them.
1: Yeah, I'm curious about, you know, how you registered the command and control server domains and started getting information. A couple things come to mind about that. Did did the malware, beyond sort of checking in with you, did, did it start trying to send you information, sending you pictures, sending you, um, you know, key logged files, that sort of thing?
2: Uh, that's a good question. So first, the reason I was able to grab the backup domains is because they were available for registration. Right. And the reason the malware then connected to them was because the primary command and control servers were offline. Um, I probably when Malware Bytes discovered the initial uh, infection, I'm not sure if they worked with an ISP to shut it down. Anyways, end result, the primary command and control server was offline. Um, so all the malware was trying to speak to the backup ones. So when I registered it, what the malware does, it just checks in and then asks for tasking. So the only thing it sends is um, version number of the malware, username, and then the full name of the computer, which is often the user's full name. You know, I'm not gonna lie, I was very tempted to task the malware, <laughs> but uh, you know that's a very gray area. And it's actually funny when I handed over my information to law enforcement, that was the first question that they asked me. Um, so. Uh, I didn't interact with the victims, and so I and the malware won't send out any uh, sensitive information until it has been tasked. So FruitFly is interesting because it kind of has the capabilities that match what a nation-state piece of malware would have, but the victims are the ones that are normally targeted by, you know, uh, cybercrime malware. But it had none of the features that cybercrime malware traditionally has. So that's why I'm fairly confident that you know, its goal was just to spy on kind of everyday users. And there's probably just maybe uh, an individual behind this insidious malware who, you know, seems to be rather perverse. Uh, But we are also starting to see uh, Mac ransomware. We've had a few samples this year. And that's something that unfortunately is probably going to continue Uh, a trend because it's such a financially incredible opportunity essentially for for hackers Um, and you know if if mac users are falling prey to these kind of social engineering attacks to install malware and you know hackers are going to continue to target them so i think there'll be more information about this coming out in the next few months and i'm optimistic that hopefully uh we'll have some closure about who did it and perhaps their motives and, and answer some of the questions that remain open at this time
0: so I, I come from a machine learning background. I have a PhD in machine learning, and, and I love it. So what I'm about to say should not at all uh, diminish, I think, the role of machine learning.
1: That's Hiram Anderson from Endgame. Machine learning has blind spots,
0: it has weaknesses. If an adversary has access to your machine learning model, in some cases, those weaknesses can be very convenient to exploit. So we came to this research Kind of with an aim to help harden and improve our machine learning models before motivated and sophisticated adversaries do it for us, right? So that's kind of the, the framework within this. Machine learning has blind spots. We like to find them first and use knowledge about, you know, we're red teaming our own machine learning models in order to patch them and provide superior protection for our customers.
1: So take me through some of the details of that. When you say machine learning has some blind spots, is that inherent to all machine learning? Is that just the way it works, or is it uh, you know the way specific systems may be set up?
0: No, in fact, uh, only the most trivial problems don't have blind spots. I think it'd be fair to say that in all applications, all machine learning models have blind spots. A famous example of this is actually not in security, but in images, where a classifier is shown a picture of a, of a bus, it knows that it's a bus with 90% confidence, but then I, I can actually ask the model, what small pixel intensity modifications can I make to most confuse you? I can ask directly the model that question and it will respond and tell me what pixels to change. The, this new image that looks to your eye exactly like the, the, the previous image now machine learning model thinks it's an ostrich with 90% confidence. And that is just something that uh, machine learning models have in common. Uh, They are imperfect representations of the world, but they are useful for things like detecting images and also uh, detecting malware.
1: And so to sort of extend what you were talking about there with the imaging, um, can you ask the systems that are being used for malware, where are your blind spots? Indirectly.
0: The research that I'm presenting at Black Hat is tackling a very ambitious problem and frankly is not nearly as successful in finding the blind spots as, you know, if I have sort of, sort of a source code to your machine learning model. The framework uh, for information security is hard for a number of reasons. Number one is that if I change a pixel in an image, that image is still an image. But if I change a byte in a Windows executable file, there's a chance that that breaks both the format of the file Or it breaks the functionality of the malware. So, those modifications are not so simply done in, you know, especially uh, machine learning for malware detection. The second point is that often an adversary doesn't have the source code, you know, he doesn't know specifically your model, or it might not be one of those models you can ask directly. So, in our setup, we are taking the most general approach. There's a black box, you can throw arbitrarily a sample at it, and get an answer, malicious or benign. That's it. Then we pit an artificially intelligent agent, reinforcement learning agent, against that black box to play a competitive game where the agent tries to learn to discover um, what small modifications it can make that preserve the PE file format and preserve the malware's functionality, but still bypass the machine learning model.
1: And so which of those two AIs has the harder job?
0: Oh, by far, in our setup, by far, it is the the job of the attacker that's hard. The attacker has almost no knowledge about what it's attacking, and its success rates are very, very slim. So in the image case, those kind of attacks where the the attacker knows everything and its images, sort of easy manipulations, I can bypass those models 90, 95% of the time or more in information security in this most general setting for malware where I know nothing about the model, the bypass rate is more like five to 10%. And it's a very hard problem for the agent to learn. But in security, five percent is kind of a big deal. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, and so, um, as the um, the defensive AI is as having uh, is sort of being uh, hammered, being pounded against by the uh, the attacking AI, how is the defensive AI doing? Uh, is it adapting as well?
0: So during the attack, that AI is not adapting. But what we do to harden our models is that we play out this series of games where the attacker becomes you know, relatively good at this job, where relatively is you know, trying to get five, 10%. When the game has played out, this artificially intelligent agent, this reinforcement learning agent can actually take a malware sample and know what modifications to make to it to bypass the defense, right? Let's, let's freeze now, the game's over, I'm going to use this agent to generate a bunch of malware samples that are going to bypass it. And then I'm going to fold that experience, those new malware samples, back into the defense. And he's going to learn how to patch his own holes. And then when you play the game again, the defense becomes much stronger.
1: And so then at that point, is it just sort of an iterative process where you just go round and round and round until you've uh, you've got a really strong defensive system there?
0: That is the hope, and that's the approach.
1: From a practical point of view, are you seeing many attackers actually using artificial intelligence and machine learning?
0: You know, I'm not a threat until guy. I don't think that, from what I have seen, that attackers are using this sophistication level, but certainly they are going to know about it. Those that are especially sophisticated and motivated are going to know that this is possible, And part of the point of our research is to get ahead of the game. We're going to be releasing code that uh, will allow friends and competitors alike to um, leverage this game play to strengthen and harden their own machine learning models based on these attacks.
1: So take me through what are some of the key takeaways from this research?
0: I guess the number one is that machine learning is a useful tool for generalizing to never before seen malware. In our games, predominantly the defense wins uh, here, but as I said before, 5% is a big deal and we like to patch those. So number two is that uh, machine learning has those weaknesses, it has blind spots, it can hallucinate. And we would like to provide a consistent and realistic method for finding those blind spots. And number three, we'd like to open this up to the security community to help us improve and, All boats rise with the tide. So we like to um, release that and have researchers and collaborators help us to uh, strengthen our machine learning defenses.
1: We originally did not work with each other. That's Zach Allen. He and Chaim Sanders are both from ZeroFox. I was at a
3: company before this, and this company was deploying and building a web application firewall. And Chaim, being the kind of engineer that he is, he reached out to us and asked us how we were doing, because he works on web application firewalls a lot. And he asked us, uh, you know, how are you verifying, how, uh, how secure it is, how are you testing it and things like that. And I pretty much said that's a really, really good question. So because Haim works on mod security as one of the core developers, we started talking about a way to quantitatively measure how effective a web application firewall could be. So after a couple weeks of discussion, we just kind of met up and put our heads together and said, you know, I think this is something that everybody needs, especially the plight of security engineers when they go to places like Black Hat, they're, they're presented with sales material, they're presented with, you know, Forrester Waves and Gartner Magic Quadrants, and they look great for managers. But when a security engineer then goes and gets the handbook on how this thing runs, they realize it kind of sucks. So what we wanted to do is level the playing field and give people a chance to measure the effectiveness in terms of logging, in terms of stopping attacks, in terms of configuration against any type of web application firewall. And that's where Framework for Testing
4: Labs or FTW came to be.
1: And so, Chaim, what's your side of this story? How did this collaboration come to be from your point of view?
4: Yeah, it was was pretty interesting. I was uh, toying around with this idea of how i can effectively test mod security in conjunction with the core rule set which are both two open source projects and uh and i was talking with zach and he he essentially said oh well we have the same problem uh but maybe we can do it in such a way that it it can scale more effectively it can be more helpful for everyone involved and i said well well golly zach that would be swell (laughs) uh and and from there, we kind of just ran with it. We, we talked about design and architecture, how we would need to make it in order to scale up from just a single test platform to one that can test many different platforms effectively.
1: Now, at the time, you all were working for separate companies. Was there any, uh,
4: any pushback from the higher-ups on this sort of collaboration? Surprisingly, there was very limited pushback uh, on my side. I was working primarily on open source projects at the time. And I think, Zach, you, you had a, an environment where they kind of fostered open source a little bit at the time.
3: Fastly was really good when it came to open source work, and they still are. And when you have a chance to contribute to like the greater secu- security community, they also fostered that. So it was a win for Fastly because we got to get regression testing from a security standpoint on our WAF, but was also good for the community. And it's just one of those weird timing and luck things where everyone benefited and no one really got upset, which is kind of weird in this day and age.
1: <laughs> so so let, help us understand here, what are we talking about when we're talking about regression testing?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, essentially the idea is that we need to take some sort of baseline at minimum of attacks that are well known and well understood and determine whether or not uh, an application or a web application firewall will ever be subject to allowing one of those attacks to bypass its protections that it offers. So to put this another way, uh, we want to make sure that once we install a protection in a web application firewall, that it's always working. Now, when you deploy this in an environment, that's really helpful. But it's also really helpful when you're the developer of the web application firewall. So it kind of has a two-pronged benefit one way you can make sure that new rules and new additions to your firewall don't break things, and one way you can make sure that it's actually working exactly how you expected it to.
3: Yeah, a good analogy for this is, let's just say you're adding something new to your car, you wanna make sure it still drives after you put on new tires or you replace a spark plug after that. And especially when it comes to software, which is definitely more complicated than most cars, even bolting on something as small as a new spark plug can just make, this piece of software fall apart, so to speak. So regression testing, just make sure that anything when it comes to a feature or a new attack or a new rule is added, that the car is still moving forward. It turns left when I turn steering wheel, steering wheel left or anything along those lines.
1: I see. So so sort of a, like doctors say, first do no harm. It gives you a way to make sure that you haven't inadvertently messed up the firewall's baseline functionality.
4: Exactly. And one of the benefits of doing that is once you've established that there's some baseline functionality present, you can then start comparing that to other web application firewalls and determining whether or not that baseline exists still. So it may not be able to test every single feature or it may not cover that currently, but it covers the core base web application attacks that we see day in and day out, attacks on HTTP, SQL injection, cross-site scripting. And we're always adding new tests uh, to kind of make sure that these are up to date and thorough. So currently we have thousands of tests that we run.
1: And so, you know, we're in a constant arms race with the bad guys. Can they get a hold of this test and then, you know, just figure out ways to get around it?
4: Absolutely. In fact, that's encouraged because in our industry, there's kind of this notion that, uh, that unless this is publicly disclosed and people are publicly kind of brought to the stake about a situation, that they're not going to fix it. And uh, one of the main goals here is to make sure that everyone at minimum has this baseline uh, for web application firewalls. You can sure add to it. In fact, we encourage you to, but we assume that developers of web application firewalls will want to know when there's a bypass. They won't want to hide that. They'll want to fix it as quickly as possible.
3: Raising the cost of the bottom line does surprisingly well when it comes to cyber defense. So if we can raise that cost, and get any web application firewall to at least adhere to this baseline, then I think everyone benefits.
1: It's surprising to me that no one has done this before. Was was this a, a, a novel effort, or had there been other attempts at this that maybe hadn't gained traction?
4: Uh, well, so we don't necessarily know of attempts that are generalized. There are certainly attempts from each individual producer, and most of them are behind the scenes, I would assume, uh, to test and provide some sort of functionality, regression capability on a given web application firewall. But uh, as far as a large scale effort that can compare multiple different vendors, this is pretty difficult to do. And we were actually in an interesting spot to do it. Vendors uh, inherently have some sort of bias towards themselves. And uh, kind of as an open source project, we don't necessarily have that initial bias that might exist in that respect. And what's the
1: feedback been from the web application firewall vendors?
4: So at least from Fastly's
3: sake, uh, it's it's used within their pipeline every day to test for regressions. Uh, the tools actually being presented at OWASP AppSec US this year, and one portion of the talk is uh, someone from Fastly who's still there talking about how it's in use. So that's been a pretty positive experience on their part, uh, and I know we've actually were working on this last night. Uh, Part of our presentation for Black Hat Arsenal is how this is now being integrated fully into the mod security development pipeline and how we can strategize about ways people can make a change to mod security or the core rule set, but they would also have to submit a corresponding FTW test before the merge button is pressed. Uh,
4: In terms of other vendors, we're still still working to get some traction. There are some uh, OWASP-type groups that have been kind of key in doing qualitative assessments in the past. uh, And they're still working on kind of pushing quantitative aspects of their evaluation methodologies. And as a result, we're going to try and piggyback on their work as as they have close ties with many more vendors than we do. But in our initial tests, it's looking pretty good.
1: So if someone wants to find out more, if they want to uh, perhaps contribute, what's the best way for them to find out more about the project?
3: Sure. So if you just go on GitHub and type in framework for testing WAFs, the repo should be up there. Uh, The organization is CRS-support. So github.com slash CRS-support slash FTW. Uh, They can also find it through Python's PyPy repository, pip install FTW, and they can go and get documentation on that.
4: In addition to that, we'll be having a couple blog posts come out on the Core Rule Set blog discussing how to write tests and how to implement them within the OWASP Core Rule Set project. Uh, And I think that should kind of lead to a little bit more understanding and traction beyond just the docs.
5: It's uh, exciting times in cybersecurity, as you know. We continue to see all these breaches and compromises uh, of business data around the world and governments, uh, that the investment uh, area is very, very active right now. That's Alberto
1: Yepes from Trident Cybersecurity. Our executive editor Peter Kilby caught up with
5: him right off the show floor. We are tracking about 2,500 companies Mm -hmm. of all sorts of stages. about 450 from Israel alone, and uh, but the biggest trends that we see is, you know, we all talk about the shortage of cybersecurity professionals and analysts. We talk about the cost of integration is being something that the customers have to bear, and there's way too many point solutions, so we're focusing and looking for solutions that are really pre-integrated, easy to consume, easy to deploy, preferably, delivered by other cloud or through MSSP through a managed security service provider. Because the middle market becomes a tremendous opportunity for innovation because while they need the same defenses and the same type of sophisticated tools the large banks and critical infrastructure companies have, they have the same needs and they actually, because of regulations have the same reporting requirements. So in the in the in the trends we see a move to cloud-based, native-based security companies and entrepreneurs, but also thinking more of not just the tip of the iceberg of the large customer with thousands of cybersecurity professionals, but I'm a a retail customer with maybe 10, 15 people in IT, and one of them has a part-time responsibility for for security. So I think that's... uh, So how do we automate... We bring automation and simplification so that the shortage of professionals can be not only achieved by training, but more importantly by bringing automated tools and tools that can help uh corporations understand the threat and
6: eventually the defense. Do you see a lot of uh, startups and, and other companies aiming toward that the bigger market versus the middle market? You know, traditionally, um,
5: if you see the new innovations in the market, has always focused on the large companies. Why? Because they're early adopters. They're willing to work with you, help you with the feature set. But eventually, when it gets to a point where there's a mature solution, you want to bring it down market. Mm-hmm. And so... Yes, we see that the majority of early companies try to focus on that market. And uh, as you bring maturity, talk about SIM, bring analytics and all that, I think some of the maturity goes to address middle market uh, solutions. A good example is AlienVault, we were just talking a little while ago, where it's a company that is really seeking to provide visibility for the average person that is probably the only person responsible for security in the small-medium business, but it gives them all the tools that once they identify something, what do I do, there's a prescription, there's a way to share intelligence straight to the open threat exchange and things like that. So I think those type of companies are beginning to innovate more on how do I bring in automation for the the middle market, the small-medium business. But most companies, like in Deception, in IoT security, really begin addressing the large companies, GE
6: all the large banks first and then eventually bring in that market. We hear a lot about uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning in various contexts. Mm-hmm. How do you see that playing into your investment strategies or the you know kinds of trends that you're seeing?
5: I would say all our companies have a component of uh, uh, machine learning and AI. You know, this is something that's been around for 20, 30 years, right? Now I guess it's more possible because compute power, storage cloud, you know, network speed, you're now you're able to aggregate and really process a lot of data and, and, you know, try to bring algorithms that are either learned by a machine or really using some, you know, predefined, predetermined mutations of, of, of viruses that you could actually predict. So I would say without exception, every single one of our portfolio companies are using a component of big data analysis and fusion in applying different degrees of automation with the help of machine learning or
6: artificial intelligence last time we spoke uh, was this time last year really yeah. you talked about the investors becoming a little bit more finicky in terms of the, um, the companies that they go after the opportunities that they want to fund um, is that still the case uh, how is the uh, how's investing changing
5: it's become harder because you know maybe last year we were probably maybe 1500 companies we were tracking now there're 2500 or so the, every company sounds the same and so it's trying to tease the signal from the noise, trying to understand who has the core IP intellectual property that could actually uh, be differentiated, becomes harder and harder so I would say that uh, venture investment has become in a specialized sport. What do I mean by that? In the past you have very large funds, they were generalist funds that would invest in app tech, clean tech, cybersecurity enterprise technology. So we are probably one of the first funds that has become an exclusively investors in cybersecurity. In January, we closed a $300 million fund, one of the largest funds in the industry that exclusively invests in cybersecurity companies. By that, so now we're, I guess, we continue to be looking for a high barrier of entry where whatever problem is being solved is something that is grounded by key requirements. Innovation in cybersecurity comes primarily by trying to solve people's problems. It has to be grounded. So very little innovation has happened in the lab in cybersecurity, arguably PKI or some things that, you know, happened in the early days. But Having grounded requirements, working with the chief information security officers, they can tell you what problems they're trying to solve and there's no commercial solution. So when we become investors, we try to get very keenly acute of the problems that companies are trying to resolve. We have a large group of advisors and many of them chief information security officers and serial entrepreneurs They help us through. Define whether this company has the right intellectual property in addressing a real problem. In the next issue, if you have the large market opportunity, the intellectual property, the thing is, how do you scale? How do you bring the growth market? That's when we come in. Mm-hmm. So once we see the large market opportunity and the high IP, we invest. Hopefully, we reference customers, bring you partners, bring you executives, bring you board members, channel partners, and eventually help you scale to you know to address the problems of many. And, and so. Yes, I think the problem has become more acute because the noise is higher, there's more companies, but the fundamentals haven't changed. By and large, what we're seeing is an industry that is maturing in certain aspects and bringing automation, but all the new innovation is coming about the, the thread vector, <laughs> the... The criminals, the adversaries, are not staying still. They're looking for vulnerabilities and, and really trying to exploit them. New platforms are emerging, as we know, and, you know, we, now we have the connected car. We, everybody talks about containers, cloud-native applications. So there's the surface continues to increase, and oftentimes we get attacked with legacy. And <laughs> so we cannot forget about legacy. But nonetheless, also we need to figure out how we cover the new threat vector. So I think as an industry, will continue to thrive. I don't think we will see a solution in our lifetimes. It's something that will continue to evolve. and But it's very exciting, thriving. You look at the Black Hat uh, this week, I think it's one of the largest crowds that we've seen and continues to amaze me the level of international participation and in corporations as well as very capable individuals that can
6: show you how the, the threat is, is actually um, real in the company to pay attention to is there a lot of competition for the deals themselves from a company like yours um, there is actually uh, it's interesting because the entrepreneurs have
5: choice so I've been a serial entrepreneur mm-hmm. I don't know you when last time we talked I ran three different cyber companies and so money's equal when you go look at an investor is what value are they gonna bring in in addition to the a, a fair offer to fund your company I think what, what most entrepreneurs look for and what they're telling us is, I want somebody that can partner in the long term, the real investors and real partners show, show their true colors when the going goes tough, mm-hmm. because nothing goes on a straight line, and you know, if you're an adapt and entrepreneur, you move with the market, and you need to move fast, that's why you're a private company, and so uh, the competition is pretty fierce. Most of the new funds come in and compete in price, but the, the serial entrepreneurs understand the value that is brought in by, by the different groups that are, I would say, the leading investors in cybersecurity. There's a lot of competition, but I think you will stand out
6: by just seeing how you can shorten time to value and de-risk the execution. Uh, do you have any um, advice for um, those companies that are seeking investment? Obviously, you just gave a big piece of advice mm-hmm. you know, right there. Look for somebody who can can bring value. But um, what do they need to do to, to stand out to an investment company? Um, how do they know they're ready for investment like yours?
5: You know, we can, you know, imagine you're, you're pitching me a deal. I, we can get really excited. But if there's not a customer out there that tells you that validates whatever we think it is, is don't even come to talk to any any investor. We, it has to be grounded on requirements and you have to have at least a reference or a couple of reference customers that really have spend the time and help you refine the problem you're trying to solve, mm-hmm. define the features you need to have and hopefully test at least the, the prototype or the initial version that eventually when and if you have a generally available product, they can become your biggest champion, your biggest reference accounts, or when somebody else calls and say, does this, this company say do what is they say to do? It's absolutely so. The best time to come in and looking for a man is when you have external validation, other than the, the entrepreneur team and people that can help you um, refine and define what segment of the market you're gonna play and why are you different than many of the others. That's, that's what we really focus on is differentiation, but validation. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that uh, that you'd like to share with our audience? Uh, well, you know, I'm really happy with the success of CyberWire, and I would love to encourage all my portfolio companies to continue to working with you because you do a great service to the community by keeping people informed in very short, snap snippets of time. Where I I, I pick up CyberWire every morning and and find out what's going on in the industry.
6: To encourage people to use it. That's great. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate you uh, listening in and reading us every day. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for talking to us. Yeah.
1: Okay. So that last bit may have been a bit self-serving, but who are we to disagree? Our thanks to Patrick Wardle, Hiram Anderson, Zach Allen, Chaim Sanders and Alberto Yepes for taking the time to speak with us. The CyberWire podcast is produced by Pratt Street Media. Our editor is John Petrick. Social media editor is Jennifer Iben. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.